Amen. Go ahead and take out your Bibles and something you can take notes with this morning. What did I just touch on my notes? Oh, thank you, God. It's right there. All right, that was scary. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Be thankful to be in the house of God this morning. Thanks, worship team. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I've been, so we, uh, this, le- this last week, at one point this last week, was uh, five years since our last Sunday service that was in my house when we started our church. So that's kind of fun. That's pretty cool. And I've had this little Amazon thing that I've preached every sermon from. It was like $82. But my computer kicked the bucket first. So that's too bad. <laughs> it's the more expensive one. <laughs> So if anybody has a hookup with Apple to help me get a computer, let me know. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing our series, Christian Living, that we started a couple of weeks ago. It's going to last a while, so we've got it split up into different sections where we are talking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And this first section of messages that we're doing together, we're simply calling Preface. The first three parts of our series, we're calling the preface because in many ways, that's what they are. It's it's a preface that Jesus gives us to the rest of his sermon. And similar to how maybe an author would write a preface in a book to give you context and understanding, he's going to set out some things that you need to be looking for, some things you should be expecting as we go through the rest of the content. That's what Jesus has been doing for us The first two weeks, we talked about the Beatitudes, and then last week, we talked about the salt and light passage, talking about how Jesus wasn't just introducing his sermon to us, he was introducing us to us as kingdom people, as salt and light, as change agents in the world that we are living in. The goal of Christian living as a series, uh, we kind of have a a goal, I guess that's the best word for it, but our goal is to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle to a kingdom-oriented lifestyle, kingdom-centered lifestyle. So that's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we are here to learn to do. And we're going to do part three of preface this morning. I want to title this morning's message, Jesus, the Old Testament, and us. Jesus, the Old Testament, and us. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 17. And on this morning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we all felt warm and fuzzy and went home. (laughs) Lord, we thank you so much again for this opportunity to be together. And we come to your word with reverence this morning and with desperation and need to hear from you and be fed by you. We believe you're alive. We believe you gave us these words and you're speaking to us through them. We believe there's power this morning to know you 
in your word, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you're here everywhere that we're hungry, would you fill us and satisfy us? And everywhere that we're not hungry, would you pour out your grace and make us hungry, that we might receive you, turn towards you this morning, and be shaped by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Have you ever wondered what to do with the Old Testament? Can we be honest in church? Who are all my good Christians who have honestly wondered, I don't know what to do with the Old Testament? Well, there's five good, honest Christians in the room. Like, what do we do with the Old Testament? And I'm not just talking about parts of it. I'm talking about all of it, right? All of it. What do we, what do, we do with this? Specifically, the parts about the laws and all that. You know, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're not exactly sure what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the first two-thirds of the whole Bible, and then the laws part, you know, like, uh, what do we have? We got some Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You know, like all the parts of the Bible that even when you do get around to the Old Testament, you still skip. Like, what do we do? What do we do with all of this? You know, like, you, you probably know, if you've been in church for a little while, you, you probably know that the reason we don't have to keep all the laws is got something to do with Jesus, uh, but you couldn't really explain it. You know, if a friend asked you, or if one of your kids asked you, you're like, Jesus, why? Not sure, but I'm pretty confident that's the answer, and I sure hope it is. And even if, even if we could have a decent answer for, for that, and, and especially when we don't have a decent answer for that, it creates other questions, you know, that we'd probably rather not face. Why is it even in the Bible? Like, if Jesus is the answer and all that stuff, why is it still part of the Bible? Why do we still read it? If we were to read it, how, how, how are we supposed to even read all of these confusing parts? As 21st century Gentile Christians, what does this have to do with us? I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking, have asked, and maybe you're asking this morning, and maybe you've buried it deep down, hoping no one will knock on your door and ask sometime. But what, what do we do with all of this? So this morning... What this message is going to be is going to be a brief survey of the relationship between Jesus, the Old Testament, and us. In other words, a brief survey of what on earth does our text mean this morning? What the heck is Jesus talking about? If you want the simple answer to all things regarding the law, Bible, and Christianity, the simple answer is... Jesus. And if that answer satisfies you, it is true. If that satisfies you, feel free to doodle in your notes the rest of our time, or it's about half time. You could go see if an A-Kids worker needs a sub. <laughs> but if you'd like to know a little bit more about that simple answer, then keep listening, or maybe start listening. Uh, and if you're going to keep listening, I need to tell you, you're going to need to be ready to do some work this morning. So don't, don't start listening and then get mad when we have to do some work this morning. As, as C.S. Lewis said one time, he said, um, if, if we want to know more, if we, want, if we ask for something more than simplicity, it is silly to complain that the something more is not simple. So that's a good word. We're, we're not trying to make the simple complicated. That's not what I'm saying. We just want to know something more about the simple answer. So that's what we're aiming at this morning. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, do not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away or will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a reference that Jesus is making here to the entirety of Jewish scripture at that time. So what we have as the Old Testament. He was referring to the entire Old Testament. See, when we hear like the law, you know, a lot of times we can kind of zoom in on things like just the Ten Commandments or like I was saying, Leviticus, Exodus. It's the stuff we know. Don't read that part. That's what we think of when we think about the law oftentimes. But Jesus specifically says the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is talking about here, if we want to know what he's talking about, we need to understand he is beginning by referring to all of it, not just parts of it. He's pointing to more than just the laws And in his day, he is using what was a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying as we dive into the text this morning is, do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from it until all is accomplished. Jesus thinks this matters for our Christian living. It's been wrongly understood that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was a covenant under which righteousness before God was attained by keeping the law. If it was true that the Old Testament is all about how do you attain righteousness before God by keeping all of these rules, then it would have been necessary for Jesus to come abolish it, to come come wipe it away and erase it, and today, that would mean it would have little or no relevance to us at all. But Jesus is pretty clear. That's not what I came to do. I didn't come to abolish it. So Jesus did not abolish it for a good reason. Jesus didn't abolish that old covenant because that was not the old covenant. The old covenant was not one where righteousness was gained by following a bunch of rules. As you'll remember from biblical formation at the beginning of our year, if you were with us, salvation has only ever been by grace. Righteousness before God has only ever been a gift of grace by faith in him. The Bible only preaches one gospel. There's not one in the first two thirds and another in the second. The Bible's only preaching one gospel. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the message is the same. God is holy. We are not. And we cannot create or attain any righteousness in ourselves if we ever want to be holy. We need God to cover us in his. And we need to accept his way that he has created in and of himself back to him. See, it took faith to obey the law. It took faith to receive the law for what it really was. You had to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You had to believe if you were going to receive the law, if you were going to try to live by the law, you first had to believe that God really was real. He really did speak. He really did give us these things. You had to believe God really is real. You had to believe that he really is holy. You had to believe that you really weren't. 
And you had to really believe that he had made a way for you to come into relationship with him. You had to believe that this was a gift from God, an invitation from him, a holy God looking at an unholy people and saying, here, let me make a way for you. And you had to really believe that if you would step into this provision of his righteousness, you would receive the reward of relationship with him. The law was only ever by faith. See, the goal of the law, the goal of the Old Testament, the goal of all the confusing stuff, it was never to point you or anybody else towards your ability to keep it. It was kind of the opposite was the point. The law was never meant to point you to what you could do. It was never meant to point you to the righteousness you could have for yourself. It was never meant to point you to how awesome you were, how good of a Christian you could be, how good of a person you could be. It was never meant to point you towards you or your ability to ability to keep it. The goal of the law has always been to point me, to point you towards our desperate need for the grace of God. The message of the law is that you can't keep it. (laughs) Not that you can. The message of the law is that God is holy. You are not, and you need grace. See, we are required to be holy as God is holy. And the law taught us that if we ever wanted to be that, the only way we could ever have it would be if God was gracious towards us. And he is. The Bible teaches us what to do with the Old Testament. Aren't you thankful that the Old Testament tells us what to do with it? The New Testament tells us what to do with the Old Testament which means I don't have to go look around and try to find somebody's good idea of how to explain away all the weird stuff. We get to come to the Bible and say, Lord, teach us what your word is. Teach us how to read it so that we can understand it and read it for what it really is. Because I want to come to the Bible and hear what God really has to say, not what somebody's idea is of what I ought to hear. Okay. So the Bible tells us It gives us six functions of of the law, six functions of the law, and you're going to want to write these down. We're not going to go into these too deep, but six functions of the law. In other words, it's telling us six ways we need to read the Old Testament if we want to understand it for what it really is. Number one, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament, the law, is a tutor. It functions as a tutor. It reveals to us the dangers and the consequences of sin. And in doing so, so, it schools us in God's holiness. It schools us in our own inability to be righteous by our own strength. And it schools us in our need for God to be gracious and merciful. It functions as a shadow. If you read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, this is what this is all about. You'll see that it's all a shadow that points to things pertaining to Jesus and the new covenant. It was designed to point us towards something. A shadow shows you that there's actually something there, but it's not in the shadow. So it's a shadow pointing us towards a better high priest, a better sacrifice, a better temple. 
The law functions as, as theology. It, it reflects to us the character of God. It reflects to us the character of a God who never changes. It, it, it testifies to us and teaches us that God is always holy. God will always only ever be one. And God is always steadfast in love, gracious and merciful. The law, func the law functions as love. It is a lesson in love. And Jesus teaches us this when the scribes and Pharisees come to him and they ask, which one's the greatest commandment? And he says, not just the great one, but he says, actually, what it's all summed up in is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So as we meditate on the law, it teaches us and challenges us and calls us to a life of loving God with everything and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Number five, it functions as wisdom. The law is, a, is an expression of God's great wisdom. So as we read it and we learn about him and we see him in it, when we read it and we get a revelation that God is holy and we are not, it brings wisdom into our lives. And the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us, is the fear of the Lord. So as we meditate on the law, it leads us into wisdom. Because as we meditate on the law, we see that God is holy and we are not. And as we meditate on that, it puts a proper fear in our heart, which properly humbles us before him and teaches us, oh, maybe I shouldn't lean on my own understanding. Maybe I should rely on the Lord for everything. Maybe I shouldn't lean on my own righteousness. Maybe he has ways that are higher than my ways. Maybe he has understanding that is beyond my understanding. Maybe I'm not God. And that is the foundation of wisdom. And lastly, the law functions for us as a prosecuting attorney. It is divinely intended to testify against us which is why it's so uncomfortable to read. Yes, God has put you on the stand. And the law prosecute, or it testifies against us. And by meditating on the law, we become acutely aware of the reality and truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, I didn't abolish any of that. I didn't abolish the law and make it meaningless. He actually came to fulfill it by being the one to whom it was all pointing. The reason the Old Testament is still scripture for us is because it still is and always will be what it was always meant to be. It was always, it still is and will always be a tutor it will always be a shadow. It will always be love and wisdom and theology and a prosecuting attorney. Jesus didn't wipe it out. He fulfilled it by being the one to whom it was all pointing. It is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the lesson the tutor was pointing to. He is the substance of the shadow. He is the embodiment of the love. He is the word of wisdom. 
He is the character made manifest of God to us. He is the righteousness that is required to the righteousness that is required of us and the righteousness required of us that is given to us. I'm thankful he fulfilled it. He didn't come to abolish it. And, and because he didn't abolish it, Jesus says this in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, because it's not abolished, because it is fulfilled, therefore, anyone or whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what? You read stuff like that and you're like, I wish you would have abolished it. Because then verse 19 would be like, so just ignore it. And when people ask you about it, be like, yeah, I know, right? It's weird. But like Jesus is kind and cuddly, right? So <laughs> so we've got we've to we've keep running with this. We've got to follow this and, and, and go where Jesus is taking us. Um, okay, so the fact that he didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. What he's saying is that not only did Jesus not abolish the law, which is to say he didn't abolish the requirement that we be holy. He didn't, he didn't take away the requirement that we be holy as God is holy. He, he didn't abolish it. And, and what he's saying in verse 19 is not only did he not abolish it, he didn't lessen it. And not only did he not abolish it, and not only did he not lessen it, he told us we better not lessen it either. Like, where is the felt board kind and cuddly shepherd cuddling Jesus that, like, pets lambs and just pats children on the head? Like, where's that? I want that Jesus back. <laughs> he didn't abolish it. He didn't lessen it. He told us we better not do it either. Jesus is telling us this morning, do not think that because Jesus loves you, he does not demand that you be perfect if you want to enter his kingdom. Do not think that you're mostly good. Do not think that most people are mostly good. Do not think that God has changed, had, had a nice little positive change of heart in between Malachi and Matthew. Do not think that his grace makes sin no big deal. And Jesus tells you, don't think that for yourself and don't you tell anybody else those lies either. God is holy, Jesus says. Sin is real and it leads to death and we all have sinned. The Old Testament schools us in this reality. And Jesus is about to review it with us over and over again through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. See, Jesus is talking specifically to a group of people who had lessened his commands. They had lessened the law. I told you you're going to have to work, and the work's not over, even though we already did a list of six things. You thought that was the work? So Jesus is talking to some people who had lessened his commands, lessened the standard. 
I need you to follow with me here. They, they had been given the law by God as the avenue of relationship with him that he gave by grace. Did God have to give the law? Did God have to make a way for anybody? Did God have to spell that out clearly how to do it? God did not have to do it. The law was the grace of God to say, I am righteous and I will give you my righteousness. Here's how you live in it. So the law was given to them as a gift of grace for them to receive by faith to walk in relationship with him so that they could walk in the fulfillment of his command to be holy as he is holy. But they saw it incorrectly. What, What happened was they received the law and its command to be holy as God is holy. And instead of leaning on his grace, they just saw the fact that they couldn't pull it off. They just saw the fact that I'm supposed to be holy as God is holy. Here's how I do it, and I can't do it. So instead of leaning on God's grace, they began reducing it by adjusting it, complicating it, manipulating it, and making it more confusing. And what they did was, through their manipulation, they created somewhat attainable goals and standards. It distracted from the command to be holy as God is holy and put the focus on these lesser somewhat attainable goals and standards. See, they, they oriented their lives around their own abilities to do things instead of orienting their lifestyles around the grace of God. The law was given to create a lifestyle where every element of your life reminded you how much you needed the grace of God. Every dish you washed, every bite you took, every step you walked, was a reminder. You couldn't do it outside of the grace of God. You couldn't do it outside of the provision of God. So God had given the law as an effort to create a lifestyle of leaning on his grace, but they left that and made it about what they could do. So instead of focusing on the grace of God, they focused their lifestyle around all of their own abilities, around themselves. The standards of all of this, they were still very high standards, but they weren't holy. You can have high standards, but that doesn't make them holy. Because holiness is a matter of the heart. That's what God's always been after. Holiness is a matter of the heart, but self-righteousness focuses on outward appearance. So they lessened the standard of internal holiness by creating somewhat attainable, and even if not attainable, at least they were measurable standards of external behavior. Tracking with me here. Distracted and took away from the standard of internal holiness and created a system of measurable external behavior. So by orienting around external, measurable, attainable standards, what that does is it means not everybody's on level ground anymore. Instead of no one is righteous, not even one, they created a whole world built around, I may not be as good as her, but at least I'm not as bad as him. Starts to make sense why this matters. 
Because if the standard is holiness, me being legalistic makes no sense. Because I got no chance. If it's internal holiness, yeah, forget that. Like, it's like I'm, I'm even going to try to be legalistic because it's not going to work anyways. If, if internal holiness is the standard, me comparing myself to you is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter if I'm better than you. Internal holiness is what's required of me. And it doesn't matter if you're better than me because you don't have internal holiness either. See, God in his grace in orienting a whole society around rhythms of remembering that they were required to be holy and that can only happen in the grace of God made no room for legalism in comparison. See, when we lessen the commands of God, we create a society oriented around self-centered legalism and self-righteous hypocrisy rather than being a kingdom society oriented around a unifying and empowering gift of the grace of God. That was God's aim all along. I'm going to raise up a nation whose literal heartbeat is leaning on my grace. But instead, they built a whole different society built on heavy burdens of legalism and hypocrisy because they lessened the standard. Jesus did not abolish the law. He did not lessen the standard. And in fact, he says very clearly here in bona fide New Testament red letters, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's bringing it all back. <laughs> Be holy as I am holy. Jesus doesn't abolish a single iota of it, not a dot. And... That's what makes the good news so good. Jesus didn't abolish the requirement for you to be holy as God is holy. He fulfilled it. That's way more outrageous than just being, ah, forget the standard. It's all good. Nothing matters. Are, are you tracking with me here? Had he abolished it, it would have meant God changed. Had he abolished it, it would have meant holiness didn't matter. Had he, would have ab had he abolished it, God wouldn't matter. Because God wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be separate. He wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be righteous. Because he wouldn't come against any injustice. Because it doesn't matter anymore. There's no standard. He wouldn't be a righteous judge because he wouldn't judge anything because none of it matters anymore. And no one is good who lets that go unpunished. <laughs> See, becoming a Christian is coming to Jesus to receive his righteousness by faith. And Christian living is then walking with him as he teaches you to grow 
in his grace. Christian living. Jesus did not come to create a new self-centered lifestyle around trying to be good before God. He fulfills the requirement to be holy, not so that you don't have to be holy, but so that you are holy. And now, this kingdom-oriented lifestyle is centered around leaning on his grace. Saying, God, you, this, you've made me holy. Teach me. Teach me to be holy. Do you want to know what the Christian life is? Growing in his grace. The Christian life is growing in his grace. The Christian life is living in the fulfilled desire of God that we would be a society absolutely and completely oriented around everything that we do, everything that we believe, every action we take, every word that we say, everything that we need is leaning on the grace of God. It is leaning on the reality. God requires me to be holy, and this is what holiness looks like, and I've got zero of it, but he came. And he gave his holiness to me. And by faith, I say, thank you. And now my entire life is, teach me. Teach me. Teach me, Jesus. Teach me. There's no sense going to the legalism because it can't touch your holiness. There's no sense comparing myself to anybody else because they can't touch your holiness. There's no sense trying to work it up in my, all my own effort because I was dead in my sin, but I've been born again, and now I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been given the grace of God. Teach me, Lord, to grow in it. You have been set free from the law of sin and death and set free into the spirit which is the law of life. Christian living is taking one step deeper into the grace of God. Christian living is that he has made you poor in spirit. Now grow in it. He has made you one that mourns. Now don't be afraid. Grow in it. He has made you meek. Now grow in it. He has given you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now grow in it. He has made you merciful. Now grow in it. He has given you a pure heart. Now grow in it. He has made you a peacemaker. Now grow in it. He has fixed your eyes on your heavenly reward, not on physical, uh, physical shortcomings, not on persecutions and pains, but on the reward of heaven. Now grow in that focus. This is the life that Jesus has called you to. This is what it looks like to grow in his grace. You are salt and you are light. Now grow in it. You are living in the fulfilled requirement to be holy. Now grow in it. Grow in it every day. One day at a time. One decision at a time. Leaning more and more on his grace. I know you know you have a long way to go, but look at where you've come from. You're growing in his grace. I know you may honestly not want to obey him all the time, but you didn't even used to get convicted of that. You're growing in his grace. You may not have that thing down yet, but it's better than it used to be by the grace of God. You're growing in his grace. 
I know that 10 years from now, you see who you could be and the Christian you'll probably be and you don't measure up to the Christian you're gonna be in 10 years today. You wanna love him more. You wanna know him more. You wanna obey him more. Oh my God, I hope in 10 years I love you more. But you sure love him more than you did 10 years ago. You're growing in his grace. Could it really be that the good news is that good? That what Jesus wants from you is to let him teach you. One day at a time, one step at a time. Could it be that Jesus is so convinced of all that he has fulfilled in you that he can celebrate one step forward more than you can? Could it be that Jesus is so convinced of what he's fulfilled in you that he doesn't need your legalism to prove anything to him? Could it be that Jesus is so convinced of what he's fulfilled in you that he doesn't need you comparing yourself to anybody else? Could it be that Jesus is so convinced of all he has fulfilled in you that he could look at you and say, why don't you come to me with your burdens and all that is heavy laden? Why don't you come to me and learn from me and I will give you rest? Could it be that Jesus really is who he said he is? <laughs> could it be that the gospel really is good news? Could it be that in embracing a life of growing in his grace, could it really be <laughs> that if we would be a people that wouldn't put heavy burdens on ourselves and one another, could it be that if we were a people that were obsessed with encouraging people and each other towards the freedom of righteousness, could it be that that is not taking advantage of grace? Could it be that that's not what makes grace cheap? You know, because isn't that what we, well, yeah, I, don't, I, I know, like, but I gotta get better. I, don't wanna, I, I can't be okay that I sinned, and you shouldn't be okay that you sinned, but it's cheap grace to worry more about that than going forward. See, the grace is better than that. The grace is better than that heavy burden. What I'm trying to say is that the way that we honor the value of grace is by trusting it enough to just grow in it. <laughs> I can't say it again. <laughs> I had it written down, but it came out my mouth better than it was written down, and I don't remember what I just said. So, Johnny, that's the Holy Ghost. I'm just, I'm trying to just shout at you this morning to tell you that this news is better than we think it is. And everything that's told us that Jesus didn't do what he said he did, it's a lie. Every heavy burden that comes down on us is a lie. I'm trying to tell us this grace is way more absurd than we give it credit for. It really is true that God made you holy, so he's not waiting for you to become it. It really is true that God's so convinced of what he's completed in you that he's okay with raising you as a child into the man and woman you were reborn to be. This is good news. This is good news. It's good news that he didn't abolish the standard. It's really good news that he fulfilled it. And Christian living is you and me walking together, growing in his beautiful grace. You and me. 
I say we do it. Let's just grow in his grace. Let's be convinced that he's actually so good he wants to speak to everything in my life. (laughs) And so now I get to grow in his grace by hearing his voice. Let's be convinced that his grace is so good that he really could set me free from that sin that's breeding death in my life. I want to grow in that grace. Let's grow in his grace. Let's really turn aside from everything that we hold on to and let's really come to him. I'm gonna take a couple extra minutes. Exodus 34, five through nine says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That's what Christian living is all about. Meditating on the holiness of God. Falling on your face in the truth and reality of it. And realizing that he's actually given you favor to come near. And this is how we respond. This is my prayer for us. I want you to go ahead and stand as we wrap up our time together. I'm praying that this would be our response to seeing Jesus for who he really is. Wow, if now, if now we have found favor, if if, if now we really have this favor in, the, in your sight, O oh Lord, come in the midst of us. Okay, come on, people. I know it's ended, but we are not done with church. We would not ask him to come if we knew we couldn't be holy. Oh, God, give us a revelation of how the fear we need to have of you See, (laughs) this is amazing. Okay. We get to now say, God, come in the midst of us. Come in the midst of us. We're a stiff-necked people, but come forgive us. Take us as your inheritance. I bring nothing. I bring nothing. Here I am. (laughs) That's the good news. Come, all who are thirsty. Come with no money. Come with no food, no drink. Come by and eat. I'm just going to pray for us and we're going to worship for a few minutes. And my encouragement to you as we close this morning is 
I hope you hear it clearly. The call is not to try to work harder to attain to some impossible level of righteousness before God so you can be a good Christian. The call to you this morning is to come to Jesus and follow him one step at a time as he matures you and grows you in his perfect righteousness that he has poured out all over you. You have favor in the sight of God. And the invitation this morning is to come to him as a child and say, well, Father, then come. Come. Come and have me as your inheritance. How is he calling you to grow this morning? What sin do you need to stop being so impressed with? What heavy burden do you need to lay down? Not because it's not a big deal, but because Jesus is bigger. Is there comparison or legalism you're chasing? Is there self-righteousness you're leaning on? Come to Jesus and learn from him. If you need prayer, I'm gonna have some of our prayer team on this side of the room. This side of the room will be open if you just wanna be on your knees before God or be in your seat, whatever it is. But Lord, we invite you to come. We come and we fall on our face right now. As you have revealed yourself to us in your word, what else can we do? But bow on our face in worship and say, Lord, if, if we have found favor in your sight, God, come. Come into our lives. Come into our city. Come into our world. Come. Come and forgive us. Here we are. Take us as your inheritance. In Jesus' holy name. That's worship.